I want to go to there. Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes, yes. 30 Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's a cunning plan, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, full hearts, get Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound on Sites TV podcast. This is Kate Kulzik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, how's it going? Uh, I'm a little sore, but otherwise can't complain too much. Spring is here. At least, I mean, it's here. I don't know if it's in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, it's nice for for now. Uh, there's not snow, so I'll just, I'm just going to take that and feel like that's an accomplishment for, for the weather right now. Well, do you still have like gargantuan snowbanks? Because I know no. that, that the ones really the ones outside my house are still taller than me. Oh wow! No, they've melted. They've melted. We had a, we had a couple days of really nice. You know, yesterday was in the sixties, so I don't know what that is in Canadian, but or in the rest of the world, I should say. Yeah, the the, the rest of the world except for who are the other countries that do metric? Sorry, that don't do metric. Yeah, there's like two of them. I don't. I, I don't think know. besides the states, it's anyway. You guys need to get on the same page with the rest <laughs> of us. Come on. Well, uh, it's been a fun week of TV. Far less traumatic than last week, though. There's a little, little trauma. There's still. definitely a little bit of trauma. I was fortunate enough to be a guest on the TV Times Three podcast this week with uh, Jason Griffin, the TV alcoholic. You can find that up uh, at the TV Times Three, and I'll be tweeting that out pretty soon. That should go up on Wednesday. But we talked about some of the shows we'll talk about this week in you know different contexts. But, but we also talked about Switched at Birth and uh, plenty of other things as well. I got to, a chance to talk about Time of Death, a, a show that I know is completely underappreciated and underviewed. So you can. Take a look for that. Uh, we we had a lot of fun talking with you guys this week. Uh, we're gonna. We also had a lot of fun talking with Scott Meslow, Entertainment Editor of the Week, about the Twilight Zone, which is coming at the end of the show. I love this the show so much. Yeah, that was really fun. I have to say. So uh, hopefully people will enjoy that. But uh, we spoke with a bunch of you guys this week on Twitter and at the website. Carl says Kate and Simon won the Good Wife moment that I could think of. Uh, you know, that was the question of the week, a very traumatic moment, uh, was the end of season four of Breaking Bad, where the guy walks out from the other... I'm trying to keep this spoiler-free for our listeners. Right, yeah. I, Carl didn't speak so vaguely, but uh, yeah, so that moment at the end of season four, where the person walks and then turns, uh, the other Breaking Bad moment was, uh, the, Carl says, was Ozymandias, where... Walt Jr. finally saw Walt's true character. I had dreaded that moment the whole series, and it was surreal to see the emotion as it played out. And he has one from The Shield, but he doesn't want to spoil me. And I'm pretty sure I know which one that is, and it's in the end of the series. Which which Shield moment do you think it is? Or is it maybe the end of the, the pilot? Uh, there's a lot of Shield possibilities, uh, including, yeah, I can think of at least a half dozen. It's not a fun show often. <laughs> Um, Beth says about the question of the week, a certain character on Grey's Anatomy, I'll just say 007 and bus. And uh, I'll also say, Beth, I know exactly what you mean. And I completely agree. I think I, this was different in that we weren't expecting a departure in the same way that we may have been on, on Grey's. And also the tone of The Good Wife is so different from Grey's, where Grey's is very heightened uh, and with life and death stakes all the time, whereas that's not how The Good Wife operates. But that moment 
where the character writes out 007 on Mayor's hand is incredibly effective and and yeah so i'm right that's that's a good call uh keith says uh about a former question of the week which show would he bring back just for himself he says terriers or lights out and i think terriers there are plenty of other people that would be on that bandwagon i know we would be what about lights out i never saw that one lights out was uh, it i don't think it ever quite lived up to its potential it did have a really nice stretch of episodes in the middle um I am interested in that showrunner, though, a guy named Warren Light, who's uh, done done a lot of interesting work. Apparently, he's sort of revived uh, Law & Order SVU over the last couple of seasons, and he also did uh, In Treatment. If I'm, I'm going to have to look that up later to make sure I didn't get that wrong. But uh, interesting guy. <laughs> we talked about a little bit about the Entertainment Weekly fiasco uh, with Depayan and Morgan, and uh, do we want to get into that or just say that it's a bad idea? Uh, I'll only add that here in Canada, um, a bunch of publications, uh, particularly based in Toronto, just got busted for uh, their unpaid internships, and uh, so that's th- there's a bit of a crackdown happening on unpaid work in Canada right now. So they, it's it's definitely going to be an ongoing issue for the next year. Yep. Uh, Carl says, "Have you watched any of the ba- of Bates Motel? I binge watched season one, and I'm hooked now in a banshee kind of pulpy way. Do- have you checked back in with Bates Motel since the pilot? I actually did watch an episode a couple of weeks ago, just because it was on. I was doing something else, and uh, it's it's not for me. I, I'm impressed with the people they keep uh, getting on the hook to be in it, but uh, yeah, no." I haven't checked back in either. Uh, I, I'm just—I don't feel compelled to, based on what I saw. I'm sure that the performances from Vera Farmiga and Freddie Highmore are still fantastic, and that it still looks very pretty. But uh, I'm just not interested. Um, he also says the handful of prison cages look like evil Tardises or tar- Tardi, which uh, I think that's fantastic. And now you've connected um, a show I, I have such an affinity for, Doctor Who, with such negative connotations so thank you for that carl and also he's just starting uh, slings and arrows so enjoy the experience because i know we're both fans that yeah that's one of the best shows we've ever talked about for sure yeah mario and i talked about the good wife quite a bit uh he says ah simon just said grief counseling for the good wife is ridiculous i need it and he says i got two tv deaths from last week the character on the good wife and then a character on scandal as well it was a rough week, and you are not alone on the scandal front. I know many people were traumatized by that as well. Well, not to mention Hannibal also. Yeah, okay, and of course, of course. Beth and I talked a little Mary Tyler Moore, which I've been enjoying catching up on. Uh, Julius let me know about the sports night segment, or you know, a couple of minutes that Josh Charles did on Olbermann, uh, which was right, fantastic. Yeah. So cool. Thank you for sharing that, and I also talked about that with Shannon and Isa. Did you get a chance to watch that? I did. I also noticed... Uh he's making an appearance on a show we like that that'll come up when it comes up but it he, he he's making an appearance on something we like in the near future yep and it's pretty awesome uh we'll talk about that next week or the week after uh steph wishes that she could remember to check out broad city i do too steph i think you'll like it and um maybe now's the time to catch up you know comedycentral.com you has a lot of their episodes up and streaming if not all of them so you know Take advantage of the off season and and check in. Yeah, you've you've got about nine months to catch up before the next season starts. Talked about Hannibal with Sean and Brian, and talked about Mad Manable with Sean, Ken, and Les, which was pretty fantastic. And then How I Met Your Mother with so many people, and we're going to talk quite a bit about How I Met Your Mother this week. Yes, hopefully not too long 
but yeah, we'll get there. We'll, we'll get there. There were no new iTunes ratings or reviews this week, but maybe next week it would be very much appreciated if you're checking out the show and you like what we're doing. Or even if you don't, you know, drop us a line on iTunes and leave us a rating or a review. At Sound On Site, it is still Greatest uh, Pilots Month. We, we just wrapped up Greatest TV Pilots Month, I should say. And reviews of the Treme pilot, the Shield pilot, uh, Damages, How I Met Your Mother, many other shows uh, just went up in the last week. So there's still great, uh, plenty of great content to check out there, as well as, of course, all of our ridiculous number of reviews each week. But let us get into what is a pretty full week in TV. There's a lot of comedy to talk about this week. Yeah, that's kind of rare. But yeah, there's, I think, at least four series and season finales to talk about this week. Depending on how you consider Enlisted, uh, there's, there may right. be even yeah. more. Yeah, so we'll, we'll take a break and we'll come back uh, with the comedies. I was stealing nostalgic from the days when my thoughts slipped onto my head from the ceiling. I remember the feeling of the useless existence of the drunk boy and listless and was waiting for something. There's so many comedies to talk about in our week in TV this week that we are splitting it into two segments. And so first, our non-finale uh, comedies. We're going to talk about Friends with Better Lives, the pilot of that. We'll talk about a little bit about New Girl, Bob's Burgers, and Rick and Morty, and then spend a little more time on Archer and Enlisted. And uh, first up, the Friends with Better Lives pilot. This is about as bad as everybody probably expects from having seen the ads there is a, a talented cast here i've really been enjoying james vanderbeek in recent years i thought it was a lot of fun on the bitch department 23 and he's a lot of fun here but this just i didn't laugh i groaned several times but there's there's nothing funny in this pilot and none of the characters are likable when you have half of your couple that's supposed to be your charming central couple uh, about to let his wife perform a sex act on him in public when she doesn't realize she's in public, then yeah, if that's supposed to be your endearing character. You've really failed. Uh, and this is on CBS. It's not like this is FX. It's not like this is always sunny. They want us to like these people, and this is what they're giving them to do. It's just not very... It's not funny. It's just very oddly conceived, and I would be surprised if it gained an audience. Oof. That, uh, so wait yeah. a minute. Is it the... Because you, you've watched all the new comedy pilots. So if you were going to do like a bottom five, where would this one rank? Um, Well, it, it, it's better than Mixology, for whatever that's worth. Um, <laughs> the thing is, most of the comedy pilots this year have either... There were a handful that were promising, but most of them were just very forgettable. And this one is sort of falls in that camp where I'm not as offended by it as I might be by something that, you know, uh, you know, some, some of the shows that have had misogynist problems or, you know, like, this is not dads, for example, but uh, it's just not funny. And it's very, I get the sense that the writers and the creators and the network think I'm supposed to like these people. And if that's the case, it just feels very misjudged. Okay. Fair enough. The, the, the point is it's hard to do good comedy. Yep, and uh, th that's why we so enjoy those those comedies that get it right, and there's a number of them we'll be talking about. One of our first main comedies or, or comedy moments this this week is New Girl, Mars Landing, and of course, 
Nick and Jess break up in this episode, and that you know, was a, enough of a reason to make sure that I tuned back in. I thought it was handled very well. I thought the uh, the, the reasoning makes sense, even if it comes out of the blue and doesn't necessarily feel earned. Uh, I think it's it makes sense, and as long as the show doesn't revert to OTP, which is their forever couple kind of status with Nick and Jess, I'll be fine with it. If they expect me to go back on the merry-go-round with this couple several more times, I'm going to be very annoyed. So are, are you encouraged by the fact that they've broken up Nick and Jess on the for the reasoning that they don't want the same things in life and the only thing that they have in common is that they care for each other? Uh, no, that sounds dumb. And... Uh, the fact that they're breaking them up now means it's completely inevitable that they're going to merry-go-round you. Why would you think otherwise? I don't know. They've done a good job of uh, backing away from the Schmidt and Cece merry-go-round. For now. That's true. Come on. Th- th- I think they're reasonably confident they're going to be around for a few more seasons, and they're just pacing themselves with their bullshit. Yeah, it will be, it'll be really fresh. And we'll talk about this with How I Met Your Mother when we get there. But this, th- <laughs> these are characters who have broken up because of defining elements of, of their personality and their life view. So when if, if they decide to just put them back together in, at the end of this season, at the end of next season, then it'll be incredibly frustrating because they will not have changed enough for for the that to feel like a viable long-term pairing. I like that when you've watched enough TV, you can just plot future problems in shows you're already enjoying. Yeah, and and often they will, you know, sometimes it, these shows will surprise you and then you, you know, have fun eating some crow, but a lot of times that is that is not the case. And but just as there are certain negative things you can sort of forecast, you can also forecast some positive ones and Here's something you can forecast. If you put the Belcher kids on a train and get, have them doing a chocolate heist, I'm going to like it. And that's what happens this week on uh, on Bob's Burgers. The kids rob a train. I thought this episode was delightful. I very much enjoyed the the storyline with the kids, but I also really enjoyed the storyline with Bob and, and Linda. Uh, this was one of the better episodes for, for me in several weeks, so I thought it really worked. Are, are you encouraged by the thought of the Belcher kids trying to steal the chocolate from a wine train? I'm definitely, I'm a little bit annoyed that I missed it now, to be honest. Yeah, well, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about it next week, but good job, Bob's Burgers. And it doesn't feel like a coincidence that I enjoyed this episode more than the last week's episode or the, the previous couple of weeks' episodes, and it doesn't have a song. So no musical moment, and I'm happy about that, and it makes me feel strange inside that I'm happy about that. Talking about feeling strange about uh, the my animated TV, I really like this week's episode of Rick and Morty, Close Rick Counters of the Rick Kind. and uh, I like how... The, if you look at their episode titling, it's clear that at, at a certain point they just gave up on their puns. <laughs> it's it's a lot of fun. Alfred Molina is just a blast in his guest uh, role, and every, everything they do with Pluto is fantastic. I love what the you know the design of those creatures. I mean, it's this was a really fun episode, and I'm on the bandwagon. If this is what the show's going to be. I'm all for this. I am not interested in what the show is about half the time. So this is a very oddly hot and cold series for me. But I'm on board with this week's episode of Rick and Morty. And I I think it's hilarious that this is the week that you haven't had a chance to get to it yet. Yeah, I'm just, I'm flabbergasted. I'm assuming there was nothing involving the marriage this week? No, there was no, uh, are they going to get divorced at all? And that, that probably helped with that. Wow, yeah. No, I'm definitely curious. I'll have to chime in again next week. 
But let's move on to Archer, Palace Intrigue Part 1. How do you feel about the this two-parter, the fact that they have a two-parter an episode before the finale? So Part 2 of this two-parter will be the penultimate episode of the season. And So what do you think about this episode? And then also, how does it feel in the overall arc of the season? I don't really get them doing a two-parter because it kind of feels like we're at episode nine of an 11 parter i don't really get i mean this episode opens when they're in the middle of a flight that they've been on for the last two episodes <laughs> so i don't really i mean you know more power to them but i don't i don't see that as, as having too much of an effect i will say that the intense serialization makes it i think it's going to make it interesting on rewatch and i i, I think this is going to be uh a, a better season to sort of just hoover your whole way through rather than watch week to week because I, f I find myself can like I actually have to think about what's already happened on the season and how they are where they are it's almost like I, I want a previously on Archer so that I can track just I mean it's not important but I, I do get distracted by it uh, and although I, I, I think also the I mean I could be totally wrong and it's just totally madcap but I almost wonder if the season isn't meant to have sort of a quasi serious underlying moral about misadventures in South America, uh, American misadventures in South America rather. Uh, but you know, or anywhere really. Anyway, I, that's something I'm thinking about. I don't know if Adam Reed really wants me to be thinking about that. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Uh, the thing with Archer this season for me is I thought, you know, the blowing up of the show at the start of the season was something that we both very much appreciated and got a kick out of. Uh, but in general, I'm not remembering episodes the way that I usually do. And I'm not laughing anywhere near as much as I usually have in the past for Archer. I think this, this experiment in, in long form storytelling for them, as opposed to, you know, more episodic storytelling has been very interesting. And I think it's, it's always great to see creators that we uh, appreciate and respect trying new things. I, just, I guess I just wish I was laughing more and I wish it was more memorable because it is so serialized I'm not remembering where one episode begins and the next episode ends, and I'm not remembering particularly entertaining moments. Yeah, I mean, I think that Adam Reed has already talked about how next season they're going to deboot and do do <laughs> do spy. I think he's he's just made up that term, and uh, and do be spies again. So I'm assuming that it's a one-off. And again, like I totally agree, more showrunners should be able to do that. Like this season, we're doing something totally different. And then get back to what they usually do if they feel like it. Uh, I'll, I'll be curious to see uh, how I feel about it when it's over. Yeah, me too. And we'll we'll check in with that in a couple of weeks. But for now, let's move on to Enlisted Paint Cart 5000 versus the Mondo Spider. And this may be the series finale of Enlisted. We It's been pulled from the air and theoretically more <sighs> episodes are supposed to air later. I want to believe them that they're going to air more. There's an episode that was one of the screeners that they gave us that still hasn't aired. So there's at least one more episode that is completely done and, and sh will hopefully air at some point. But if this is the series finale, if they do not air any more episodes, how do you feel about this episode? And does it change? Does your appreciation of it change if it is a series finale? Well, it's obviously no kind of finale. Especially, I mean, it's such a wacky episode. And that would be a really weird one for them to go out on considering... You know, they have had some some heavier moments here and there. Honestly, it wasn't my favorite episode. It mostly coasted by on the awesomeness of the robot spider, if we're being honest. Which is, you know, if you've got to coast on something, 
it's a pretty good thing to coast on. But, I mean, the whole actual showdown with the effects and the action beats was a little bit too community for me. It was very community. That's a good that's a good connection to make. I would disagree with the notion that it's all reliant on the the robot spider because I think Keith David in the photography studio was hilarious. Oh yes, yeah. Sorry, I totally forgot about the beat plot and Keith Keith David is so obviously just having a blast. It's delightful. Uh, in between the milk bath and the, the an umbrella and a unicycle or something, the bicycle is that was just delightful. Every time they went back to that, it really worked. As for the the main storyline, I wasn't particularly thrilled with the paint cart five thousand, but uh, for me, it was less about the Mondo spider and more about just how effectively douchey that uh, Schneeberger character is. I thought that was very well played. I mean, he says military. He says military. <laughs> uh, I I did laugh at the at yes syrup, uh, <laughs> and a, and a couple other bits. I mean, it it was for me on the scale of enlisted. I think a kind of a middle of the road episode, but I did appreciate the effort to finally sort of interrogate Chris Lowell's character and figure out why he's there, uh, and sort of start to do something with that. Hopefully, they have a chance to do more. But uh, yeah, it's dispiriting that it might be over. Yeah, we'll have to see, you know, hopefully it'll come back. I know some people are more encouraged about it's coming back. I know Todd Vanderwolf at the AV Club is pretty confident that it's going to come back next season, let alone even just to finish out its run. But we'll see, you know, what happens with it. But we're, we've definitely been fans of the season and uh, the show in general, especially in a year when uh, we have friends with better lives or a bajillion shows trying to recapture the Wonder Years and failing. Enlisted has been a pleasant surprise. For sure. That wraps up our first half of the comedies. We'll take a break and come back to talk all the, the various comedy finales this week. What is this feeling that's put you in your place? A hot red burning on the side your face you feel the blood rush to your cheek tears start to fill your eyes and your lips are trembling but you can't speak you're trying oh you're trying not to cry you just got slapped across the face my friend you just got slapped yes that really just happened It felt like the only song to transition into our comedy finales was You Just Got Slapped by Marshall Erickson featuring Barney Stinson based on the the sheer ridiculousness and poor conception of the Himian finale. I know you're not uh, a big fan either, but before we get to that, shall we talk about some of these other finales, Simon? Yes, because they were all 
better, really. Yeah. I'll start with the chosen finale. I know that you didn't uh, dive back in with the series, but I tuned in for their finale this week, the Battle of Broken Spear, and I had a lot of fun with it. I thought that the the wrap-off between Chosen and Phantasm worked really well. I liked the whole spirit walk, and the spelling bee was really effective. So I actually had a lot of fun with this finale, and I was glad to have tuned back in. What's the chance that you're going to tune back in for that uh, or catch up with it this week? Uh, pretty low, unless they've really raised the bar on the actual uh, in-show wrapping, which I kind of doubt they have, then uh, no, it's it's unlikely. I'm pretty persnickety about these things. Well, it doesn't seem to have caught on in the way that I'm, I'm sure they would have hoped. And I know I mean, nobody's talking about the fact that Chosen had its finale. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't be I would be surprised if it came back for a second season. FX is having a real problem launching new comedies. Yeah, they really are. And it's hard to, you know, because I think Chosen was more interesting than many of the ones they've done. And I know legit... Uh, really improved for me over the course of this current season and yet nobody at least that we follow is really talking about it so it's unfortunate that that affects us you know even though they're having higher quality comedies than maybe they've had in the past doesn't seem to be able to get new viewers yeah and wilfred is having its final season so once that's over, they're going to be in a really tough spot. Yeah. Let's uh, talk, though, about the Brooklyn Nine-Nine finale, Charges and Specs. This, along with Enlisted, was are probably our two favorite new comedies of this season. Is that accurate? You know, that's true for me. Is that true for you? And what did you think of this finale? I mean, I think I, I definitely have more appreciation for Enlisted just because it feels uh, less like a, a at least partial carbon copy of an existing series the way that Brooklyn Nine-Nine feels for Vintage Parks to me. But I will say that the finale was pretty solid. Uh, if you didn't figure out exactly what was going on with the flashback structure in the first two minutes, uh, I would be surprised because it seemed like it was incredibly obvious. But that didn't really bother me. I, uh, I, I Actually, my favorite thing about the episode surprised me, which is that I like the totally straightforward way they had Jake just ask Amy out. Just map. Just point blank, or or rather say like, oh well, I will at some point, but not not right now. Going undercover, <laughs> uh, that I was really that was actually one of the few times the show's actually surprised me. So kudos on that score. It's such a not network sitcom thing to do. It's wonderful. It's very refreshing. Yeah, I mean, as much as like I don't really care about them as a couple, mm -hmm. but if they're gonna do it, it's nice for them to do it in a uh, in a totally straightforward fashion. Uh, I also totally saw the Chelsea Peretti uh, final scene coming, but I didn't mind that either. Well, and again, this is a show that has done such a great job of its with its use of its ensemble cast. I, I really like what they give uh, Terry and Rosa to do, along with, of course, Chelsea Peretti is, is fun. But, I mean, the full, with, with the eggs, with Boyle, that really worked for me. And then, of course, if you're going to have Andre Brower ballroom dance, this is the way I want to see it. Yeah, I mean, Brower... <laughs> He's the one who should be netting Emmys for this show. Can we be clear on that? <laughs> yeah, but I, the progression of the character of Jake over the course of the season, and I think some of that's the character and some of that's just the writers figuring out how to play to Andy Sandberg's uh, strengths, has really been marked. And I think, I think what we get in this finale is a very positive sign for next season. Yeah, if they can next season have him come back uh, from his duties and and you know significantly tone down the smarm, uh, which I think on some level they must know that they need to do, and in some episodes they have done, and it's worked really well. If they can keep doing that, I think it'll it's it's the way forward for them. The other positive finale. I'm just gonna guess. I'm reading your mind and saying that you liked this finale. Was Broad City the Last Supper? How much did we love this season finale? 
Oh my god. This this was so this was if it wasn't my favorite episode of Broad City, it was pretty close. It was almost perfect. Like there were maybe a couple of gags here and there that kind of fell flat, a couple of the sort of grosser bits of humor that I could have done without. But I I love the way it just totally refocused on the Abby and Alana friendship and very little else. I didn't even miss Hannibal Barres, which is shocking because he's been so good throughout the season. And in previous episodes where he hasn't shown up, I've been like, where's Hannibal? Uh, so many great sight gags, so many great incidental characters. Amy Poehler directed the hell out of this episode, by the way. Uh, I loved her little bit character as well. Uh, so much goodness. Uh, oh, it's just, oh, I can't even, oh. especially, uh, I need to also mention Abby's just Godzilla stance, smashing the glass, carrying, carrying Alana. Oh, oh, I can't even. So much love for the makeup department. Yes. Oh my God. The, actually the makeup on the show and the effects in general are consistently great. Yeah. It's, it's, it was incredibly entertaining to watch the progression of her, you know, shellfish allergy. And that was just so much fun, the whole thing. And taking it back to very much the the sense of the fact that they are, you know, not the upper middle class of people that we spend most of our time on TV watching in yes. sitcoms. And you're tying that in with her parents are paying for this meal, which is why they have this fancy dinner. And all the culture clash with that really worked for me. The the cutaways in the kitchen really worked for me. And in that climax with the uh, the Godzilla moment or the, uh, the, the King Kong moment really was uh, successful as far as I was concerned. Yeah. And, and, they're, and they're trying on a bunch of jokes and sort of sets of gags that other shows have just done so poorly like there's nothing original really about you know poorer people go to a high-end restaurant or uh someone goes into anaphylactic shock or you know etc etc these are all avenues we've seen before but they bring a different zeal to it and uh i was there i there was really there wasn't a single scene that didn't make me laugh. And I loved, loved, loved the uh, the very last uh, stinger with them just on the street kicking yeah. it. It was such a great, like, sort of denouement and uh, the, the two characters walking off into the sunset, especially had this, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure, has it been renewed yet? I feel like it's going to it be It has renewed. been renewed, yes. But if it hadn't, what a wonderful way to end the series. And I like, I always appreciate shows that are aware that maybe they won't get picked up. And so I thought that was such a lovely way to end the season. Yeah, but uh, luckily the show it d- does already have quite a following, and I I think we'll be we'll be watching it for a few years. Remember at the start of the season when you we were talking about uh, when you specifically you brought it to my attention, but we were, we were talking about Broad City, and it didn't even have a Wikipedia page, and after episodes had aired. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And now it, it now it's definitely got a solid cult following. So I'm just gonna assume that's because of us <laughs> clearly. Uh, well, let's let's rip off the bandaid. We've waited long enough. How I Met Your Mother ended its series <sighs> last night with Last Forever, part one and part two. And where to begin? I, I think it's just a given. There are a few people who like this finale, and I'm glad they did. I'm glad that there are people who enjoyed this finale. I feel like the way to start with this is, is there anything, any single thing about this finale that worked for you or that... Uh, you know, was able to give you fond memories of the show. I will say, first of all, uh, full disclosure, I haven't been watching Himium this season. I've caught a few snatches here and there, but uh, if there's anything that I could have seen in the last couple seasons that would have made me like the finale more, uh, then I probably missed it. So keep that in mind. 
However, um, there were a couple of little moments that kind of work or could have worked with better execution. For instance, Robin's little speech about how she thinks of the gang now started off as a really good scene until she says something about, and the guy I should have ended up with. Ugh, anyway, but you know, it threatened to be a decent scene. Uh, Ted's actual proposal to, uh, what's the mother's real name we find out? Tracy? Tracy. Tracy. His actual proposal to her was a nice little scene. That was about it. I, I think uh, I, I'm more generous on this finale than you are. I thought the the scene with the the umbrella where the the two do finally meet. I thought that was lovely. I thought it was very well uh, pitched and performed, very well written, uh, and that absolutely worked. That should have been the end of the series, as far as I'm concerned. If that had been the final note that the show went out on, and then you know, pull back, maybe narration, uh, and end of series there i think they could have saved themselves a lot of problems but uh oh and also i will say the notion of of barney becoming a father and that shifting his perspective on things i think works the way they just as a basic plot idea or a character beat of course they managed to completely bungle it and and not only that but they the fact that they decided that they wanted to make barney a father meant that because they'd established that robin was couldn't and wouldn't have children uh, that that they had to break them up because it was more important for them that Robin end up with Ted and that uh, Barney have a kid than that this couple they've spent not the entire series but much of the se- of the series building to would just dissolve in the matter of one episode how, one scene how, how horribly mismanaged and ill-conceived was this finale? Have you ever seen a finale so poorly conceived and so out of step with all the strengths of the show and everything that the show has been promising and and building its fan base to expect for its entire run? Have you have you ever? Uh, I don't know. I mean, Alan Sepinwall made a really good case for that. If they hadn't included that line in the pilot referring to her as Aunt Robin, and if they hadn't, basically his his, his case he made the case that Carter and Bayes just took a few crucial wrong turns and then stuck to them they you know credit where credit's due they had a plan and they stuck to their guns it just happened to be uh both both a terrible plan and a terribly executed plan I can imagine a version of this exact story that works I actually can but the writing and the conception of several key points is so misguided and just, I mean, for instance, just think about the conception of Robin. Let's just talk about Robin for a second. Like she's a great character. Kobe Smulders has been fantastic for the show's entire run and she's had to sell a lot of, uh, anyway, just, I mean, we see her paired up with Barney and then this, really hap I, I thought haphazardly written uh divorce sequence this, which did not sell me at all and then have her basically be a sad dog lady for t- what 15 20 years until ted shows back up again just to make her that person just for the purpose of having this be your ending to do that to a character you've spent all this time with is unthinkable well and also and this is my one of my things with i was talking about earlier with jess and nick on new girl they dated they were together substantially had a very deep 
emotional connection bond. They were very a very functional couple for quite a while, but they had to realize they had to break up because they wanted very different things out of their life and they had different priorities and different goals. So what has changed? Because if anything has changed, it happened off screen and we didn't get to see it. So why should I invest in in a retread of the entire series when we've already seen what happens when Ted and Robin date and it doesn't end well. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's so many things fundamentally wrong with this that I'm having a hard time even organizing my thoughts. I'm sort of, it's breathtaking how bad almost every idea was and not even just restricted to the finale, but like they knew for years they were going to do this and everyone okayed it. And they still did this last season over the wedding weekend. That's, you know, of all the bad decisions, that's the one that really blows my mind. Well, and also, the, the I just keep going back to, and this is something, uh, this is part of why everything that went down in The Good Wife was such a, had such a strong reaction. It come, A lot of times it comes down to trust with, with showrunners. When you're watching a show for a long time, you invest in it and over time the show teaches you how to watch it and it teaches you what to to expect and and it it sort of creates a connection with you as a viewer hopefully that's that's what you're looking for and in in the pilot and in the entire series consistently in the entire series we are told by the show by the creators by the characters that this what the show is about is leading us to meet the love of Ted's life and that this is such an important person. This is such a, a monumental person. This is a person he cares about so deeply that he's taking us on this journey. And then to then to get to the finale and say, oh, fuck that. Actually, it's this person that we've already seen, you know, this entire time. And, you know, that that twist in the in the in the pilot that's so effective and that's so fun. Uh, no, actually, this entire, entire season, this entire nine seasons of the show has just been one big psych. It really was. The person for him really was Robin all along. I mean, she dies. The mother dies off screen. Yeah, that's, that's another thing is like when the theory started to circulate. And although people, certain various people have, have postulated that for years and my hat is off to them. When when the idea started to, to you know circulate that actually the mother's going to die and he it's just a way of. of for him to ask out aunt robin again i think you can make that work if you if you build up properly and that and her death can really be a huge emotional gut punch if you handle it right then but then to have her die off screen of an unspecified illness and then uh i love the way someone else put it for the kids reaction to be like oh we don't care about our dead mom go fuck aunt robin like oh yeah really that's how you're going to play this? Well, and also just how do you, I understand they needed to film the ending ahead because the, the actors who play the kids were growing up and that makes sense. It, the, the handling of it, it's so choppy and poorly. Yeah. You know, I understand there are constraints, but that did not work. The editing of that, that final conversation between future Ted and the kids, but how do you not film a array of options for yourself just in case just in case something happens if if Colby Smulders gets hit by a bus what do you what what's your season ending if that's the only thing you film how did they not I give mean, themselves options I don't see it being a big problem that the kids are older it can make for a funnier ending frankly but cuz you know cuz that would be a, a you know a great meta comment on just how long it's taking him to tell this story 
But, you know, obviously they didn't feel like going that way. But, okay, I don't want to go on about this forever, but I think the worst, the actual, the actual very worst aspect of this finale to me was the handling of Barney Stinson. I was going to say, I was going to guess the negating of how many seasons and years of character development for one of their main characters. Yeah, that was, uh, again, I'm just, I almost want to hug Carter and Bay's for just the sheer breathtaking scope of their of their ill-advisedness uh just yeah you're right spending years trying to essentially reform barney and having him you know get rid of his playbook and you know in nph you know he went he went 100 percent on that and it wasn't always totally convincing but you spend enough time on something and you eventually sell people on it especially if you've got good actors then to throw that away and then have him double down on being awful. Just, just be, he really does revert to being an absolutely horrific human being. And then to try to sell us on that he's going to be reformed by the, the, you know, the child of his nameless, uh, number 31, which, oh, that aspect. Anyway. <laughs> Greta Gerwig, right? Uh, oh, I love that theory. Um, but I mean, uh, I mean, th- seeing him be that horrible and then give the speech to that baby about how he's going to give her everything makes it sound like a threat. All I could think of is I am terrified for this child. <laughs> yeah, it it just I mean, and that's the thing I keep coming back to. They had this ending in mind for years. They had years and seasons of 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 seeing what worked and what didn't and what the fans and the viewers and other critics saw as the strengths and weaknesses of the show and of uh, the the things that they did well and the things that they uh, maybe had more trouble with. They had years to reconsider this and they still thought it was a good, how, how? Well, and, and this, you know, this episode has produced kind of a mini critical meme about this is why it's, it's bad to plan your, your TV. This is why it's bad to have a plan and stick to it no matter what. Only if it's and a I, stupid plan. Yeah, I, I agree to a point. But A, the thing is most finales are bad. They really are. Finales are really hard to do. Most of them are bad. And also most shows are bad. But it's not about whether you have a plan or not. It's about whether or not you're writing in an intelligent way. You can have a plan and execute it and it can work. Or you can be making it up and you can crash and burn. Both have happened all the time. Well, and also the point that you made so fabulously on Twitter was uh, what we just watched that be amazing on The Good Wife. Yeah, like on you know, on The Good Wife, they had to, you know, uh, I'll, I'll avoid spoilery bits for here since we're talking about a different show, but they had to respond to an organic development behind the scenes. They had a year to do it. And they handled it beautifully, at least so far. And that's that's an example of people responding off the cuff and planning in advance. Yeah. So maybe a hybrid approach is best. But this this idea of throwing plans under the bus because we're all traumatized by how bad this is, I can't really get behind. Yeah. Well, we, we really should. We're going to keep just talking in circles. So uh, one positive <laughs> memory about how I met your mother to take us out. Uh, I mean it used to be a great show it really did it 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 was it's it's doubly distressing that this finale was so sort of sort of socio-politically abhorrent and lazy and 
uh, again, ill-advised, because the show for years was almost revolutionary. And, uh, I mean, this finale doesn't take away the fact that they've got, they did great seasons and almost everyone involved did great work, including these people who we're so mad at right now. So, uh, let's, uh, you know, now that we've given them, uh, the appropriate shit heaping, uh, let's remember that it used to be really good. Yes. As I always say, a great finale or a terrible finale does not negate everything that came before. So just because this finale is, again, I just keep going back to how hilariously ill-conceived it was and uh, maybe uh, poorly executed even outside of that. Uh, I, even though I really thought this was not a good finale, that doesn't change the fact that I say general editor, general editor, and with my family, that we, we quote, uh, challenge accepted all the time. I have a copy of The Bro Code on my bookshelf. And, you know, this is a show that has given me many, many fun adventures and uh, a lot of quality time with a group of characters that I have at various times cared about. So finale, you know, regardless of what we just saw the other day, this is still a memorable and entertaining show, or it has been that, and uh, I, th I think that's that's what viewers, frustrated viewers, should hold on to. Yes. That, and I am terrified for Greta Gerwig right now. <laughs> yes. That is certainly the case. Before we move on, what wins your week in comedy? Oh, it's totally going to Broad City. Yeah, I'll give it to Broad City as well, with an honorable mention to Rick and Morty. What? Wow. And an honorable mention to Enlisted since, uh, anyway. Yes, yes. So now we'll take a break and come back with uh, the hour longs. In not comedy, we have The Amazing Race, uh, The Red Road, Parenthood, Hannibal, Justified, The Americans, and The Good Wife. Lots of shows to talk about. I'll kick things off with The Amazing Race, Down and Dirty. Uh, there was some fun challenges this week. The the whole the elephants moving the tr the trees or the tree trunks was uh, was really very cool to see. I loved the gas challenge. That was uh, <laughs> that was that was intense and a lot of fun and in the pool i uh back in the middle so uh right now bob's in first place with 52 points kyle has 42 points and i'm tied for sixth with 30 but you know what there's still a lot of season to go it's been fun and i'm i'm enjoying the the racing the the teams the interaction with the teams i what something that the last place team who don't get eliminated this week say that i think is very valid is that um, the great thing about All-Stars is that nobody makes mistakes. So nobody makes stupid mistakes on the show because they've all, you know, they get asked back because they are competent. 
hopefully and hopefully interesting. So so I am I am really enjoying the season and I do think that the challenges have been more interesting and more uh well conceived this season. So uh, I'm very much enjoying the Amazing Race All-Stars. I'll also mention the Walking Dead finale A. I liked it. I thought it was pretty well done. Of course, you have Michelle McLaren. She did a wonderful job directing this. But I know you don't watch The Walking Dead, so I'll just leave it there and say that if you want more thoughts on The Walking Dead finale, you can check out the Sound Site Walking Dead podcast. This week it was myself, our our editor-in-chief, Ricky D, and our guest was Randy Dankovich. And you can uh, find that in your Televerse iTunes feed, or you can find it up at soundonsite.org. Next up is the Red Road, the Great Snake Battle. This is their penultimate episode, and I it sort of stalled for me. All the interesting stuff about this series for me has been related to the characters. The plot feels very uh, familiar. So I'm not very interested when they dive in with the plot more this week, but maybe that'll kick up in the finale. And I'll spend a little bit more time on the finale next week, but let's move right on to parenthood fraud alert. And what did you think of this episode? Among people who uh, talk about and write about parenthood this week, there seemed to be a, a huge amount of consensus about what happened behind the scenes. We can't actually know, but this was the first Jason Kadams episode in a while, at least the one that he got credited with, and it really feels like he walked off the set of About a Boy and into the Parenthood writer's room and was like, okay, guys, let's get a few things straight. So there's a very overt effort to make every subplot work, and I appreciate it when shows try to readjust because, you know, as we've just talked about, shows that can't adjust on the fly are doomed to fail. And uh, I, I, was it all successful? No. But I appreciate that there's at least an effort to uh, fix the Joel and Julia stuff. I don't think it works, really, but it's something. And uh, I, I do like the, the whole idea that the, the, the shared the shared credit card finances thing does, uh, you know, like the practicalities of divorce or something we don't see, uh, or the practicalities of separation, rather. Something you don't see discussed uh, on on TV or in media a lot, so I I did like that aspect. Um, I don't know. It it was it was definitely a, a slight uptick, and I again I appreciate the the effort to make everyone slightly less horrible, but uh, the shows they still got some work to do. Yeah, this for me really in this episode and also last week's episode as well my review for both the episodes together is up at Sound on Sight, and for me what these two episodes illustrate are the consistent strengths and weaknesses of this season of the show. So everything with Joel and Julia with the kids has been great. And watching that, how they react to this has been, you know, very compelling watching Drew and Amber deal with them this week. I thought worked really nicely and uh, was, was interesting and gave those two groups of characters a connection that, that it makes sense for them to share everything with, Joel and Julia themselves, though, I, I mean, I'm sorry, but a throw-off line about about his parents is not enough. Not, I mean, I like that they realize that maybe they need to give an explanation, but this was nowhere near enough to start fixing that. And if, I'm sorry, this is the first time they've even mentioned any part of his family, any non-Braverman family member for Joel. This is the first time they have been mentioned in at least a season, if not more. And that is a significant problem if you're going to introduce like this emotional baggage. Yeah, that that was sort of the parenthood equivalent of, is this because I'm a lesbian? Yeah, that's absolutely the parenthood equivalent of that. Um, when we get to, I mean, the stuff with Zeke and Crosby, I thought worked really nicely. It was really, again, another fantastic moment um, 
building that that transition for for Zeke out of the house it explains where he's coming from but doesn't negate all the progress we we've seen over the course of the season i love that they show the that everything about this house for Zeke and um and Camille correlates to their aging and for her it's i'm we're getting older i want to make sure that i do something with the rest of my life and for him it's this is what my life has been. I don't want to lose that. I'm getting older. This is making me feel older if I give this up. So I, I like that they handled that very, if, as, you know, consider, considering some of the other elements of the storyline this season, I felt like this was handled pretty subtly. Uh, everything with Sarah, though, I'm still not liking it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and it's, it's doubly, I think, frustrating because Hank is just so consistently likable. Mm-hmm. And especially I love his scenes with his therapist. And uh, it's it's not a good look when someone who is a an, a supposedly incidental or recurring character is this much more likable than the regular character he's spending his time with. Well, and the thing is, yes, obviously, uh, it looks like we're going to get more with Sarah and Hank next week sort of explaining things. But I'm sorry, if you're going to build much of a season around... Hank and Sarah and and Hank wanting to get back together with her and Sarah sort of trying to do this year of independence. First of all, you need to establish that she's doing a year of independence at the beginning of the season, not just when it's convenient to have her break up with her hot doctor boyfriend. And then also you need to explain why they aren't just together. We may get that answer next week, but when we last saw them at the end of last season, they were really, they're wonderful together. And they, they had built up this really nice relationship to the point where he asked her to move to Minnesota. So when he's back, why aren't they back together? We deserved to see that uh, if they if they wanted us to invest in that relationship. Yeah, it's not even about deserve. It's just, it, it's basic plot math. You know, you want us to be invested and, but you won't give us basic information that would be relevant to the situation. So it just doesn't work. Well, and I understand that they got distracted from that with all of the wonderful material we got at the start of the season with Sarah and Amber and Ryan. I absolutely get that. But then don't turn around and ask us to, you know, invest in Sarah and her, her relationship with Hank. She's just been horrible with him the past several weeks. And and I love the, the line that they give Hank last week about there are Bravermans everywhere and you keep coming to <laughs> <Yes>. me. <laughs> yes, that was great. Any thoughts on uh, uh, any thoughts on uh, Max this week? Uh, not really. Th they, they can't really put a foot wrong with Max. Yeah, I really like the surfing. I like uh, that. Uh, what goes with that here um, and tying in. Uh, Christina and Adam with the Max storylines way more interesting than the school, than mayoral race, than let's open up a label. Remember, those are all things that happened this year. Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts on parenthood or shall we move on? Oh, we got so much else to talk about. Okay, next up is Hannibal uh, Mukozuke, and you can find the Sanicide Hannibal podcast up in your Televerse feed or up at Sanicide as well. That's myself and my co-host, Sean Coletti. This week, we are joined by Todd Vanderwerf of the AB Club. Had a lot of fun talking about that. And yet, somehow, we did, forgot to mention that Mukozuke is the course in the Kaiseki meal progression that is sashimi. How did we not mention that when we find Beverly in the way that we find her this week? Ah, you. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so here's where I am with Hannibal. Uh, it is a technical marvel, 
Brian Reisel's music is consistently incredible. The uh, effects work is marvelous. The fact that it's supposedly done on a relatively low budget, I find hard to believe because it's so consistently beautiful. Uh, Mads Mikkelsen is incredible, blah, blah, blah. And yet, I'm really not terribly invested in where this is all going right now. And I think part of the problem is that uh, the, the first half of the episode when they're actually dealing with uh, Beverly's death is really effective. Uh, that part of the episode is great. The turn with Will, I think, is... Uh, I'm just going to say, I think it's a straight-up dumb idea. The idea of turning Will into a murderer by proxy or attempted murderer by proxy is kind of foolish because for a show like this to work... I think you need a character like Will in previous episodes who is just, may, yes, maybe he can be manipulative, but he needs to be, I think, completely innocent because he uh, is surrounded by malevolent evil of various kinds. And, you know, you're basically dealing with a chamber drama of only five or six characters, and many of them are murderers. <laughs> Uh, or, you know, enmeshed in, 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 in murder or, you know, have ulterior motives, etc. So I think to take that away from him makes the show uh, just really unpleasant to watch in a way that, in a different way from, you know, the usual unpleasantness. I, I don't know if I can get behind that. That's interesting. Now, so you would have the show not present that as an option for him, or you would have the show present it as an option that he chooses to not take? Either's good. I'd be okay with either of those. Well, see, because the thing for me is, if he he knows that Hannibal is doing this, is killing many, many people, if he has the option to kill Hannibal and doesn't take it, and then Hannibal goes and kills a bunch more people, how is he not culpable? Uh, well, it kind of seems like... The, the thing that uh, I have a really hard time with is that in the first few episodes, he's clearly formulating a plan... That plan was reliant on Beverly. Uh, yeah, and then they had Beverly behave stupidly so she could die. But anyway, um, it may have been reliant on Beverly, but uh, clearly it was it was at least as reliant on Doctor What's his name, who's still around uh, for now. So I don't see her as being necessarily uh, necessarily integral. Uh, on the other hand, he could have just told uh, Lawrence Fishburne, "I told her to check out Hannibal, and now she's dead." Uh, which would probably have done the trick also. Well, we'll see where, where they're going with that next. It looks like my, my prediction, at least right now, is that Jack is going to be the next one to jump on the Will bandwagon. Um, and so I would be surprised if, basically I'd be surprised if that fight we saw actually occurred in the finale. I have a feeling we're going to get it a little earlier. Uh, I hope so. But yeah, I, I guess my issue with Hannibal right now is I'm just... The the claustrophobia of it is becoming is making it less fun for me to watch. It's it's making me really wish the show had more of a sense of humor about itself. But when we get sequences like the one this week where that very bland serial killer character uh, abducts Hannibal, and I just keep thinking to myself, you know, this is just a very well staged version of what would be a really dumb sequence in any movie I'm watching. Okay. The sequence uh, at, at the pool, or the sequence when Hannibal's up on the on the cross. The sequence where Hannibal is is being crucified on the bucket is just like oh, if if this was in a movie right now, I would be 
shaking my head at how ridiculous and cliched it is. Fair enough. Fair enough. I it sounds like I enjoyed the episode a lot more than you did, but uh, but I think there'll be more for us to talk about in the next couple of weeks. Um, so we should move on there because there's still so many shows to talk about. Let's move yes. on to Justified the Toll, and uh, we're getting in, into the end game. We are. Uh, this was. <laughs> I sort of lumped this in with last week because uh, it was the week of violence. And, uh, of course, this week we had not only art shooting, but also uh, Picker blowing up, hmm. which was probably the... Actually, I think just for poundage, the bloodiest scene in Justified history. So good for them. Uh, I don't know. There was a lot I liked about the episode. Um, a lot of individual scenes really worked. I, I loved Amy Smart and... Uh, Nick Searcy's interaction before, you know, shit hit the fan. It was awkward to hear about Theo Tonin pinning the, pinning the, the attempt on Picker without actually seeing it. I thought it was weird. They couldn't just get Alan Arkin in for that. Or, sorry, Adam Arkin in for that one scene, but whatever. Uh, I liked that whole, uh, the, the twisty aspect of that. The actual execution of, uh, of the, uh, of the death of Picker was really good the lead up to that with the like four scenes referencing Boyd smoking was way too much uh, wink, wink, nod, nod, which I'm really not used to justify doing. Um, I think the main problem is that I'm just still not sold on Boyd. Uh, sorry, on, on the Raylan uh, Daryl jr. Interaction being the main driving force for the end of the season. That just doesn't feel like enough. I, I like this week, everything we get with Mary Steenburgen. I like that they're giving her character so much of a, uh, of a mystique without but it, it feels like it's something that's grounded in in mm -hmm. the world so, yeah so, she's fantastic i take back everything i said last week it's wonderful to have her on board and uh and, and tying her in very effectively with win and make immediately makes us more invested in in win as a villain as opposed to as comedic reaction mm -hmm. dude and that's good her, her scene with uh, nick gomez may have been my favorite in the episode the stuff we get with kendall is less convincing to me if only because i I want. I, I don't really believe that Wendy would let him do this, and obviously they make sure that Wendy's finding out when we are. But that that still feels like it's a little. Uh, it, feel, it feels contrived in a way that I usually expect the justified to not be. So I'm sure that'll be undone and and quickly. And um, so that we'll we'll see what goes with what happens with that. But um, but no, there's a couple elements this week that work more or less and um a, a big less for me all season remains ava and the handling of the prison storyline and then also just uh this 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 lack of exploration of of where raylan is at i think there's too much of that that's been left for us to infer and it's a wonderful it still is a wonderful performance by timothy oliphant but i feel like it's too underneath yeah, I, I, I sort of, in my review this week, I postulated that uh, I think one of the great strengths of the series has been uh, Oliphant's role as producer and the way he seeds ground to other performers and uh, and other creative voices to uh, to sort of leave their mark on the show. And that's made for a lot of great seasons. But when we're so close to the end, not only of the season, but of the series, I think they really need to reassert Raylan's position as the protagonist and really get in get finally get into his head one way or another and they're choosing still to not do that which i think is biting them in the ass a bit yeah any other thoughts about this ep week's episode any predictions for our last couple episodes here 
Uh, I'll just add that uh, I was reading Matt Seller's sites, I think, talk about the the way that he thinks the most compelling aspect of the season, which he agrees isn't uh, hasn't been as good as, as the others, is the way uh, the show has us thinking about uh, fathers and surrogate fathers and abuse and um, and sort of Raylan's position amidst all this uh, not entirely blameless. Uh, I, that stuff is all interesting, uh, but I don't think it's enough to make it. Uh, as as compelling as past seasons have been. Yeah, we'll see how the season wraps up. Of course, last year at this time, we were heading towards a decoy and a, a fantastic finale as well. So Justified has a history of very memorable and very well-executed finales. So hopefully this year will be no exception. Uh, let's move on, though, to what I thought was a very uh, fantastically executed episode, The Americans, The Deal. This one really worked for me. What did you think? Uh, it was good. It was definitely a good episode. Uh, the I liked everything with the Mossad agent. I like the decision to keep him alive, uh, at least seemingly, because he would you know he would be a really interesting recurring presence. Uh, at least that seems to be what they're what they're setting up there. And uh, his line about um, about the difference between him and Philip uh, was was definitely the highlight of the episode. Beyond that, I I, I didn't think it was necessarily like a leap above uh, what they've been doing lately. It seems pretty consistent. The the way they just have uh, her drop in on Martha, I thought was uh, rather Elizabeth just sort of drop in on Martha uh, without any preamble was a little bit strange. Uh, maybe it was that she'd heard the phone messages independently and decided to go over there, but it just seemed like they could have had a scene establishing that. <laughs> I mean, I realize the episode was already running long, but still. The uh, the scene with Paige sort of haphazardly trying to explain what's going on was interesting. Uh, what's going on with her rather was interesting, but again, a little underdeveloped. Maybe we'll get more with that later. Um, and uh, we also have the new handler this week, who I'm not sure how we should feel about yet. But I don't know. There's lots. There's lots of good, but there's lots that I'm still sort of waiting to see how it pays off. The the Martha scenes really worked for me, Martha and Elizabeth scenes, and so maybe that's part of why I enjoyed the episode so much more uh, than it sounds like you did. Though it sounds like you enjoyed it, but I just I I really was on board with this one. And and for me, I didn't want a scene setting that up. I like that she just, you know, Martha opens the door and she's here. And it's, of course, of course, that's the the solution. And why didn't I think of that? It makes so much sense to have Elizabeth go over and sort of handle this situation, seeing as Philip can't. I also loved everything we got with the Mossad agent. The conversation about the icicles was very interesting. And uh, really, uh, you know, that, that sense of longing for home. Or is he losing his memory of home is he losing his connection with his home or is he holding on to it and i think you can read it either way so i think that's that's interesting and we'll see where it goes next but um this you know everything with with Paige and elizabeth and and philip this week really works for me i agree it's sort of a wait and see about the new handler uh it's also a wait and see about oleg and stan i did not expect that uh, no, uh, it's a little bit strange that there's so much in this episode that revolves around Nina and yet she only gets one scene, but, uh, I mean, I, I predict Nina, uh, destroying Oleg one way or another by the end of the season. I'd be very surprised if that didn't happen. Yeah, we'll have to see what comes next, but I'm looking forward to this episode this week, uh, because that'll be the first new episode for me since, you know, February, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I would be too. <laughs> Let's talk about The Good Wife, The Last Call, and thank the TV gods that Josh Charles said he would come back if they needed him in this episode. Yes, uh, it was definitely important. I mean, some people seem to be really, really, really blown away by this episode. I thought it was really good, uh, but 
not uh, not next level or anything. I think it was exactly what they needed to do, and not necessarily a whole lot else. You can kind of rank um, everyone's reactions by how powerful it was, and it's, uh, some people have already done that. I noticed there was a listicle ranking the cry faces, but um, I mean, for instance, the stuff with David Lee was great, uh, mostly because. Uh, I think that they knew they they had to establish just how earth-shaking this was, and by having David Lee be something other than smarmy and horrible, uh, that's a good way to do it. Uh, everything with Diane was fantastic. Uh, Christine Baranski just hit it out of the park. Uh, other scenes, I was kind of lukewarm on. Everything with Kalinda and her cop friend and uh, and Jeffrey. Eh, I don't know. I don't. I'm not sure I needed that. I thought it was good. I like that we see Kalinda's reaction to this being to go into Kalinda mode. That makes sense. And I like that she reacts. I like the the breadth we see of reaction where David Lee has his reaction, but then focuses in on work because that is what he needs to help process. And that we see Alicia just melts and we see Kalinda you try try to get answers, even though she knows there aren't any. I, I think the way that that's handled, and, and also Carrie, too, seeing the more periphery characters. Mm-hmm. Carrie's scenes were great. Fantastic, yeah. And, uh, and, and I also love, and of course it makes sense, and it was the only thing they could do, but still the handling of just how quickly everything with uh, Diane and Alicia and Carrie, any animosity that might have been there just immediately melts away. At least for now. At least for now. Um, yeah. yeah, and I, I, I think what they did really well was establishing how in a in a universe like this where everything is so fast paced, you're not going to be able to stop life from intruding for very long. Yeah. <laughs> and although I mean, obviously, uh, Diane takes great pleasure in in uh, in getting rid of getting rid of one of their clients who tries to intrude, but the idea that you know within the next week or two the good wife could be getting back to more or less what he usually does, albeit you know shifted around makes sense uh to me at least so i mean i don't think they're going to be doing this i don't think next week will be as funereal as this week and i don't think it should be the the scene with uh with alicia and grace was fantastic personal pet peeve i don't want to go on about this too long but i don't think that it's good form for people who believe in a higher power to assure non-believers that their dead friends are in heaven uh don't do that it's not helpful well and i like that it makes sense coming from grace coming from yes. a teenager and she's trying and she has she's trying so much to to comfort her mother and to be there for her and to support her and and that is what some people uh will what will help some people and will give them solace it's never gonna give alicia solace and uh of course you know there might be other people we don't know the the religious affiliation or the beliefs of most of the main characters i'm sure there are other characters in alicia's immediate circle who believe the same thing that grace does but grace is the only one who feels like it'll help for her to say that and i love, I love how respectful on both sides that conversation is yeah uh i i would agree with that uh, i also really like the one scene we got with matthew good this week i know you haven't seen him much but based on uh seeing him and stuff like stoker and uh just the little we've gotten with him so far i i think he's gonna end up being a really really important get for them yeah, he was really great in that uh, the the whole Lupion painkillers thing can be difficult to balance with the intensity of Alicia's experience in that scene. So that worked really well. And uh, I also enjoyed, this was another example of the good wife taking care of a problem character 
very quickly and off screen so that, that we <laughs> Jason Amaro's character is fired I'm assuming based on what this scene and that's just such a wonderful way to write off a very uh, unfortunately handled character yeah, it, it's amazing that they've done so much good this season, but there's still just been a couple of trouble spots. And whenever the good wife hits a trouble spot, you know that you're not long for the show because they do not have the patience to sort of peter that stuff out, so to speak. Speaking um, of, any thoughts on Peter? Um, I, I will say that I, I actually liked the way um, e Eli t takes over the speech and it sort of has a comedic beat, but sort of doesn't. Like in any other episode, this would be funny, but here it's just awkward and kind of sad. Um, and that that sort of weird tonal imbalance actually worked for me. It seems like we're going to get to the uh, intense stuff with Peter as early as next week, which I'm looking forward to. I wouldn't be surprised if by in a few episodes we don't see him really at all anymore. We'll see what happens with it, but I wish it was airing next week. It's taking a week off. Oh, right. Yeah. Damn it. <sighs> yep. Yep. It's such a wonderful stretch of uh, episodes. I rewatched the the last chunk of the previous episode this week and had a very different reaction to knowing what was coming. It was a very mm -hmm. different reaction watching it because you, you have that sort of disbelief element removed. At least I did when I was watching it this time. Uh, so I, I look forward to seeing the entire season in context and even going back to watch Hitting the Fan and some of these early season uh, uh, f five episodes. But uh, such a wonderful stretch of time. And I'm still I feel like this is an appropriately mournful episode. It was it was cathartic and it was I, mean, I was thinking about it for several days after watching it. And, you know, I had a huge reaction to them deciding to, to kill Will. But I didn't have that sort of grief that a lot of people did. It was more just sort of shock. And so to to let the viewers really process through an episode like this, I think, of course, that's what The Good Wife was always going to do. But I think they they did it very well and they handled a tricky situation with a lot of grace. Yeah. And I think that anyone who was worried that they were going to just hit, you know, hit the reset button and be back to normal uh, this week, I think doesn't have any faith in in the kings which they really should by now uh as well as someone else on twitter i think maybe ryan mcgee was saying that well he, he hopes that he that you know the show doesn't just become misery porn now i don't think there's any risk of that either yeah yeah we'll see what uh what comes next for the good wife but simon what wins your week in drama uh i will give it to the good wife and i will as well oh man but uh, a few show notes here before we go to our DVD shelf with Scott Meslow of the week. Our outro music is Sweet Petite by the Bicycles. You can find a post up at soundonsite.org for this episode where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can also email us at televerse at gmail.com. You can like us on on Facebook to follow the goings on at Sound Site TV. You can leave us an iTunes rating or review. We have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed, and we would greatly appreciate feedback there. You can also follow us on Twitter. I am at the Televerse and you are at Sucker Howell. And Simon, what is our question of the week? What do we learn from the Himium finale is my question. <laughs> what, what is the lesson here? Because I'm still trying to figure it out. Try, an exterior perspective on on your series long answer. That's that's you know, that that's what I would take away from this. If you feel like you know the answer of your show, find somebody that you trust who is not the person who helped come up with the idea for you and get a get an external perspective. Yeah, the uh, the old angel on your shoulder. There's definitely a lot of cases in in the arts over the last 20 years where I can think of someone who needed one of those. Yep. Well, let us know what you think and uh for now let's 
take a break and come back with Scott Meslow, Entertainment Editor of the Week, to talk about The Twilight Zone. Portrait of a Frightened Man. Mr. Robert Wilson, 37, husband, father, and salesman on sick leave. Mr. Wilson has just been discharged from a sanitarium, where he spent the last six months recovering from a nervous breakdown, the onset of which took place on an evening not dissimilar to this one, on an airliner very much like the one in which Mr. Wilson is about to be flown home. The difference being that on that evening half a year ago, Mr. Wilson's flight was terminated by the onslaught of his mental breakdown. Tonight, he's traveling all the way to his appointed destination, which, contrary to Mr. Wilson's plan, happens to be in the darkest corner of the Twilight Zone. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kulzik, joined as ever by Simon Howell. And this week on the DVD shelf, we are finally talking about one of the all-time great television series and one of the all-time great genre series and that's the twilight zone i am so excited here to help us uh unpack this fantastic show is scott meslow entertainment editor of the week scott welcome back to the podcast yeah always a pleasure to be here so why did you want to talk about the twilight zone for starters the twilight zone basically speaks for itself if we're just going to talk about a show that is about as universally beloved as a show that old can be and holds up that well twilight zone is at the top um and honestly, there's there's a little bit of a challenge factor, you know. I've been on the podcast a couple times. I've talked about narrative shows, shows that were more recent. Uh, it's really hard to boil down why The Twilight Zone is so great, but I think we should give it a try. Absolutely. It's such a seminal series, and it's such an influential series. And and the, and yet, I think maybe it's that last element. I, I want to believe it's that last element. Uh, until right now, no previous guest of the DVD shelf had ever even mentioned that as one of the shows that they were interested, like it, when they had like a list of shows that we would kind of, you know, pick from, this has not, has not come up once until now. And that is so, somewhat astonishing to me while at the same time being very understandable. Well, it, the, the twilight zone, I mean, I, I kind of get why it hasn't been brought up because it is kind of a daunting thing to try and cover. It's the only full blown anthology series I can, rem I can remember us uh, covering, although I'm probably wrong. Oh, wait, we did the Outer Limits, of course. But the 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 shadow of the Twilight Zone is is a little bit longer. And what's interesting is that yeah, it's an influential show, but it really has no analog that I can think of other than maybe remakes of the Twilight Zone. Like yes, the Outer Limits is kind of similar, but what the Outer Limits doesn't have is the Serling factor. You know, the fact that it's led by this creative who's also kind of an entertainer in his own right who penned or co-penned over 90 of the episodes <laughs> i mean that's just that's that screams outlier i mean you're talking about basically the orson wells of genre television and um and that's something that i think about when i think well why why don't people do anthology shows shows more because they kind of rule even though sometimes by necessity they don't uh, and and maybe that's one of the things that's missing is is a towering creative to kind of organize the whole thing. Well, and I think another reason they don't do them is because they're hard and they're very hard to make popular. 
And and I think that's one of the big things we'll talk about with the Twilight Zone. It it was just so and is just so unique in the landscape of television and had such a it broke so much ground with the kinds of stories that it was telling and the uh you know the ways that it would would tell stories and that's something that people really latched onto when it was on the air and it still you know find value in but it's very very hard to recapture the the notion of well they if they should make a show that's kind of like the twilight zone or that's an anthology series or you know the, the number of shows inspired by the twilight zone or that are uh you know people attempting to to capture the twilight zone there's very few that come even a little bit close it's absolutely like you say simon an outlier and it's frustrating because it feels like it should be easy on paper not that the twilight zone is not a towering accomplishment but you just take you get all of the most famous actors of their time you get them to slum it a little bit and tell these kind of didactic little parables that comment on society every episode's different like it feels like that is an achievable goal. Someone should be able to do it again. And it just, it never works. Maybe, maybe it's Serling. Maybe that's it. Yeah. I think Serling's a big part of it. What I find, uh, you know, cause I, I ended up binge watching about 10 or 11 episodes more or less in a row. And what I find, what I found appealing about it. One of the things I found appealing is yes, the show is frequently didactic and tiresome in the way that Serling will pop up. And especially at the end of an episode, explain to you, some very obvious truths about the allegories you've just watched, and it is annoying, but it's also kind of endearing, and just his intro narration sometimes does a, a really great, really evocative job of doing a lot of the heavy lifting of setting up a whole universe for you, which you're going to have, you know, you're only going to spend 25 minutes in that in that universe, and you're never going to go there again, and that's the kind of touch that now just series will not do. Well, and I think that that a big thing that you say there, Simon, is 20 or 25 minutes. Because whenever people try to recapture the magic of the Twilight Zone, every time I can think of at least, they always try to do it in an hour. And this is something that we talked about, or I talked, today, I talked about, in the only DVD shelf to not feature Simon as well. Uh, when, we, when we brought on Bill Macy to talk about The Outer Limits, that was had a very different feel to it because it was an hour-long show. A big part of why the Twilight Zone works in the kinds of stories that it's telling is that it is only doing doing that incredibly didactic and somewhat obvious but endearing analogs for for 20 minutes, 25 minutes. Well, no, there is that hour-long season that I think everyone agrees doesn't work, and clearly they went back to the 30-minute format. They must have agreed, too. Yeah. Well, and, and when you say uh, also about with Rod Serling, what I, one of the things I really enjoyed this time that I didn't have an appreciation for or I didn't notice, I should say, when I was growing up with the series, it's been uh, one that I've enjoyed since I was a kid. And even when I most recently watched episodes, you know, a few years back, this time I really appreciated Serling's enthusiasm. Because there were certain episodes that when he's doing his opening narration, you just get this sense of he knows this is a good one. And he's so excited to share it with you. And he knows the twist already. There's like a little twinkle in his eye. And there's a really strong sense of because this is a anthology series, but it's a sort of like we talked about recently on, on the show, Simon. It's a, an anthology series curated by Rod Serling. It's it's curated by something you somebody you trust. And that really, for me, that his presence and his enthusiasm and his, uh, you know, uh, merry prankster sort of uh, approach to it really works for me. And that's actually at its height right in the unaired pilot, which 
is again I, I can't think of 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 an analog to this it opens with 10 minutes of his message to advertisers about why the show is going to be awesome and people are going to buy things if they watch if they watch the show and what he does is he teases five or six future episodes but then holds back on the twist with, you'll see it's gonna be good <laughs> and it's it's it should be again it should be corny but Serling has a way of making it endearing and actually kind of exciting yeah to me there's almost a there's like a Johnny Carson type effect to Serling where there's that you've got that twinkle you've got that that kind of knowing look at the audience and the the sense of being in control of everything all the time even when things go a little off the rails I mean we're talking about how great the Twilight Zone is, but when it's bad, it's really bad. Like there are terrible episodes of the Twilight Zone, <laughs> but but it's still there's something so entertaining about the bad ones too. Like it it's almost like you can't talk about you, you couldn't show someone now and say okay watch all of these great episodes because you're kind of missing the experience if you don't you know sit around on New Year's Day and binge watch three hours of episodes, good and bad. Well, and also with the bad ones, again, it's over in twenty minutes. Yeah, I mean that's. That's a large part of the appeal, and you're right. It's it's strange that for all of the shows that ripped off the format, you know, if you take Outer Limits or Alfred Hitchcock Presents, I don't know why they all thought the thing they needed to add was 30 more minutes of plots. I mean, that's where Tales from the Crypt, to me, is the only really successful successor to The Twilight Zone, and it followed all of those lessons perfectly. Half yeah. hour. Yeah. One general comment that I that I wanted to make, because I, I did, you know, binge watch a bunch of these together, and unfortunately I did try to stick to what people said were the best episodes. I wish I'd had time for the worst, but I didn't. I'm sure, Scott, you can fill us in on some of those. But one thing I really appreciated is, even though Serling writes or co-writes a lot of the episodes, there's a nice diversity in terms of the protagonists. I don't necessarily mean diversity in terms of, you know, racial diversity because no it's 1959 to 1962 or whatever but uh in terms you know in terms of the you know there are episodes like for instance uh the four of us are dying where the main character is a shape-shifting con man and then there's other episodes where you've got kind of an everyman other episodes where you're kind of dealing with really unlikable characters for 25 minutes and again that's okay because it's 25 minutes and i think what the what the show capitalizes on it, with that super short time frame is that you know when you're watching a, a continuing series you don't necessarily get to insert yourself into the narrative in the same way because you form relationships with the characters here I, I find so often you're thrown into these bizarre situations and you think well how would i deal with the fact that i've just woken up and no one remembers who i am for some reason or i've just woken up and I live in a world where everyone looks like pig people. Spoiler alert for that episode. Uh, the, uh, you know, that's kind of a, that's a different sort of kick that most series don't get to have. And, and the way that he, that, that he finds sort of different ways to handle that, I find kind of fascinating. There is almost that choose your own adventure feeling to the whole thing. of like, you know, you see that crazy opening credit sequence and it's like, well, here we're going to see something, something crazy is going to happen. Yeah, talk about and I like that you know we're mentioning this before the final moments of the DVD shelf, as so often happens where we forget to mention this until the end. Uh, one of the all-time classic, great, memorable opening credit sequences and theme music. It's such just I hear that that opening music and I just smile and I get goosebumps. 
on the, the you know the back of my neck because you know even even knowing that this is not a scary show this is an entertaining show for the most part uh either entertainingly good or entertainingly bad but still you know i have very positive associations with the the show but something about the 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 specific chords that are you know plunked out you know on on our on our what is that a keyboard uh in, in this opening it's just it really it's very evocative and it uh i just I, I just love the opening every single time now we talk about rod serling i feel like there's a few other names that we should mention of course comparatively recently departed uh richard matheson and then you have you know Ray Bradbury, you have, uh, you know, a lot of really great writers either writing for The Twilight Zone or more often having their work adapted uh, for for The Twilight Zone. And I do think that's an important part of what works about it, that they, that they do have all these wonderful short stories that they were able to to draw from as inspiration. Are there particular writers that stand out to you guys? Yeah, I think I think the Richard Matheson episodes tend to be quite good ones. Um but it's it's always clear when Sterling has had a hand in a script. I mean, mm. it is it is almost an auteur TV show that way, in that not only is he the host, but he so clearly massaged so many aspects of the production. Well, and uh, that this this idea that he's not only a writer but also a curator really helps to buttress my uh, Serling as Wells argument. You know, Wells is a guy who also you know transitioned from radio to, in his case, film; in this case, television. Uh, and did so, uh, you know, both doing original stuff, but also, of course, uh, adapting a lot of Shakespeare, both on film and on stage. And uh, Serling has that same quality where he's he wants to push his own stories, but he also has an eye for, you know, when his contemporaries are doing something interesting and then putting his own spin on it. So, again, that's something that the uh, that as far as I can tell, the uh, the efforts to do this sort of thing again uh, have failed, except I, I guess there there was a couple of attempts with Stephen King, but uh, those mm. didn't seem to come off. Yeah, so our listeners can check out our uh, Steve Procopi horror picks to see our takes on some of those. But uh, but shall we shall we dive in with some of the specifics here? Sure thing. What are the episodes that immediately, Scott? Let's start with you. The, the, what are the three or four that immediately come to mind when someone says the Twilight Zone? The established classics, the canon that everyone should see, Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, To Serve Man, Nightmare 20,000 Feet, It's a Good Life, the one with the creepy kid on the farm, um, and the one with the talking Tina doll, Telly Savalas, uh, I think. For me, you know, when, when, those are the ones that literally jump to mind when I think about the Twilight Zone. Not necessarily favorites. There are some deeper cuts there, but those are, that is the canon. For me, I would add in uh, Time Enough at Last. Simon, any others that immediately come to mind for you? Uh, I made an effort to watch uh, most of what was on the uh, the TV club's list of, of essential episodes, and uh, they they made an effort to skip sort of the more obvious ones, although I did catch a couple of those as well. Out of those, I mean, some of them I actually was quite underwhelmed by, including uh, Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, to be honest. That was one where the didacticism was just... Uh, I can deal with one layer of felt tip at the end, but when there's like seven, I kind of check out. Um, and actually, what the ones that I sort of dug more were the ones that either didn't overplay their theme, or just didn't really have a detectable theme, or or at least not a not a a moral, I guess, to take away from, or at least not an obvious one. Uh, for instance, I really loved Five Characters in Search of an Exit. It's so silly 
but it's also so over the top in its surreality that I, I, I just totally went in for it. Obviously it doesn't have the creepy factor of some of the other episodes. I also really loved, uh, the four of us are dying, which is kind of a sci-fi noir, uh, just absolute oddity. Again, I, I marvel at what they managed to create. They, they create not only a whole universe, but seemingly a, a whole genre in that 25 minute span. And I uh, also really liked uh, Person or Persons Unknown, which, uh, again, just not so much, uh, really no moral to speak of, just kind of unsavory and paranoid and unpleasant in a good way. What's the premise of that one again? Person or Persons Unknown is uh, about a guy who seems like kind of an asshole, to be honest, who uh, wakes up and his wife doesn't remember, doesn't doesn't know him. She she just wakes up and he's a stranger and then he goes to work and they're like, you've never worked here. And then so so he thinks he's insane. And the ending is pretty hilarious. Uh, a, a deeper cut, I guess, that I would mention that I really enjoyed. That was a discovery for me, actually, was uh, Willoughby. Uh, I, it's uh, that's not the full that's not the full title. The one that has Willoughby and a train. Um, Last stop to Willoughby or something. Yeah, something like that. Scott, what were your deeper cuts? Oh, and then we haven't mentioned Eye of the Beholder somehow. Oh, God, that's terrible. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's so many. God. <laughs> um, yeah, to me, the one the one that I really remember, because the way I would watch The Twilight Zone is in marathons with my dad when I was a kid, you know, when, when sci-fi would just blocks of it on holidays. Um, and I remember being absolutely terrified by Mirror Image, which was the one where the woman's in the train station and sees, she sees the doppelganger of herself and no one believes her that she's run into a clone of herself, and a guy ends up getting her committed to insane asylum and then sees a doppelganger of himself. And that's mm. the end of the episode, him chasing his doppelganger. And there's just, sorry for the spoiler, this is just, you know, 50 years on. But uh, <laughs> there was just something, like, that's almost, that to me is almost more the Twilight Zone experience than the canonical episodes we've talked about. Or, like, I guess when I, even when I was a kid, and certainly now, I kind of liked the Twilight Zones that have, a nastier flair to them when there's not there's not the didactic moral at the end and there's not really a happy ending for anyone involved it's just like this little window into the strangeness of the universe uh so will the real martian please stand up is a wonderfully silly episode that is also sort of dark and weird uh you know th this sci-fi mystery about is there an alien in this little truck stop that's this little one-act play um i love the masks which is the one where the the guy dies and has all of his greedy, horrible family members over and makes them wear masks that resemble what he thinks they were in life in order to get their inheritance. I won't spoil the ending for that one for anyone who hasn't seen it, but you should look that up. They're all on Netflix. It's just, it, this is where, this is where I think no one has done the Twilight Zone because it's just, how do you, how do you begin to break down all of the good and bad things it did over even a fairly brief run? Yeah, I think a big word, keyword in what you just uh, were saying there, Scott, is, is, one act play because that's what so much of uh the twilight zone feels like it feels like uh, there's most of the episodes not all but many of them are in one set they're a group of people interacting or talking in basically one area and uh there's very much a stage or or play kind of feel to them and i think that also might be a part of what works uh about it in its context but maybe you know, now or, you know, like a remake wouldn't necessarily work as well. There were different expectations for what television was at the time when it was airing and people were much more accepting of something that felt 
like a filmed stage production. They there's you know these are very still very uh, talky episodes. Yeah, uh, and something else that uh, that that least that stood out to me when you watch a bunch of them in the same sitting is a lot, not all, but a lot of the episodes episodes boil down to one of let's say three themes: uh, isolation, uh, invasion, or annihilation. <laughs> Uh, and you can, I guess you could, you could add just general paranoia in there, but so many of the episodes are about someone who is in a predicament that either has them completely alone or they may as well be alone because everyone else thinks they're nuts or everyone else is on a different plane of existence. That seems to just come up time and time again. I'm not sure if that says more about Serling or more about the times. But what I love about Serling too, is that like, on top of all of that paranoia, which is totally there and totally accurate, like, you know, Serling, Serling also has this weird sentimental streak. There's this episode, Cavender is Coming, and it's it's this really bizarre, it's a wonderful life ripoff. Uh, it was the only episode that ever aired with a laugh track, and it was it was a backdoor pilot for a series that was clearly very near and dear to Serling's heart, even though it's terrible and a miserable failure. And that's that's one of the things I love about The Twilight Zone that I don't think any other modern show has. Like, you knew roughly what you were getting into, but you could just watch an episode in a week, and it would be the strangest, like, most offbeat, even for the Twilight Zone, take it in a totally different direction. There was a versatility to the show that I don't think anything else has anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I actually thought of Capra a couple of times in a couple of these episodes, and It's a Wonderful Life specifically, and I think that's another thing that's missing from, you know, you watch, for instance, the 90s uh, version of The Outer Limits, which I actually watched a lot as a kid. And from what I remember, that show was just constant doom and gloom and horror and and unpleasantness and trying to freak you out or depress you or or say, do you see a lot? Uh, whereas uh, the Twilight Zone, sometimes you'll get something nasty and sometimes you'll get something almost saccharine. Yeah, there, there's a wistfulness. The notion of the quaint town pops up uh several times i i know that prompted me because we did comparatively recently talk about uh the x-files like willoughby or uh when the the man is revisiting his childhood i I had a a flash of home (laughs) from the x-files there uh as well uh but um no for me the the episodes that that really stick in my mind uh and i think partially like you guys are saying, the, there's a variety to the setting or to what's what's going on, and you know, as you watch a multitude of them, that keeps this from getting tiresome. But the the episodes that most stick with me are the ones that instill that sense of dread or that sense of strangeness, and uh, and even just self doubt. I know I know a big thing that makes Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet work for me, and I think it's a fantastic performance from Shatner. Uh, in that episode. It's so it's a very big performance, but that's that episode requires it. But that it looks so, so ridiculous when you watch it now. And yet as soon, when he opens up that shade and the thing is right, right next to his face, I jump every single time. And, and, and there's <laughs> this, it manages to convey so completely this sense of losing one's mind because everyone else is 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 so still and calm and you know normal yeah, that, and that happy. That's a perfect jump scare. That is probably the best jump scare I can think of on a TV show. I, I thought you were going to say all time. I was I was going to jump in with Wait Until Dark, but oh. yeah, no, we didn't go that far. <laughs> this is, it's definitely a good one. But 
quick, everyone, what's the only problem with that episode? Oh. I don't know. The only, the only problem with that episode is when Serling pops in at the end and is like, oh, hey, look, there's still the damage on the wing, so they're going to find out and it's going to be okay. <laughs> God damn it, that's Serling. That's sort of beautiful. The senti- again, the sentimental streak comes in. Don't Everything's going to be fine, guys. He's not going to be committed to an insane asylum. Like That's such a weird Serling instinct that I don't think anyone right. else had. But then again, like, if you're watching, I, I, I'm trying to think of the order I watch these in, but then if you think of um, of Time Enough at Last, there's nothing good that's ever going to happen. <laughs> He's just stuck. His options are sit there and do nothing or shoot himself, and that's it. <laughs> Maybe hoping he can find some glasses somewhere in a deserted thing. Uh, maybe he had tucked an extra one into his thing with yeah you're right you're right there's no another thing i love about time enough at last by the way is just how viscerally unpleasant that character is to spend time with yeah yeah it's a perfect performance by Bridget Meredith. he's so hateable <laughs> <laughs> well and, and yeah and there's you know and when you talk about the, that, that ending and how you know sometimes it is so saccharine and then sometimes you get the uh the end of the talking uh tina doll episode uh where, oh, where where it's the it's the end and he's dead and you're like oh how much of this was did he do to himself and it's like no no that doll is alive it's not just that he's crazy the dolls alive. and and that's one that I had to specifically mention that episode because the the ending narration uh and this is something we talked a little bit about before we when we were off mic earlier Simon but uh as much as we love Serling as much as we love so much of his narration that's got to be some of the worst narration. Of all time. Of all time. He's like, so we all know that in real life, dolls can't really talk and kill people, but sometimes they can in the Twilight Zone. (laughs) There's this great line about how, oh, but of of course dolls can't talk. Then you're like, oh, okay, so it's going to be like a whole, you know, was he crazy or was he not? Make up your own mind. And then it's like, no, here's the answer. This one did. Uh, so as much as, you know, as much as that, that voice from Serling is, you know, really works in the beginning of episodes, often works at the end. There are some times where you just want to tell him, oh, just, just delete that line. Just, you know, edit out that 10 seconds of dialogue and it would be perfect. I I will say though, that uh, my favorite line of narration is probably in, uh, five characters in search of an exit when he pops up near the beginning, uh, literally atop all the other characters. And he says, uh, we're we're not going to end the nightmare. We're only going to explain it. Do you have any uh, memorable uh, moments or, or dialogues that stood stood out for you uh, when you most recently went back, Scott? You know, I just think so much of it, so much of it just pops in such a funny way. Maybe it's just that I have like this nostalgia in my bones with this show at this point. But it's not even it's not even oh that was a great line or oh that was a terrible line. It's just like. Oh, there's Rod Serling. Sometimes he's on the screen. Sometimes he's just doing that like weird clipped thing he does with his voice. Like it just, it feels like a warm bath of TV. Like I just get to settle into this thing again. Yeah, and and I think a big another big thing for me with this series, and you mentioned Scott as well. And for me, this is a show that that I was given an appreciation of uh, with my family and uh, with marathons on on holidays and. Whenever we get to a New Year's and people start talking about things to marathon, it's always somewhat odd to me because the correct answer is the Twilight Zone. 
the there is a correct answer on when you should marathon on New Year's Eve, and it is the Twilight Zone because that's a, the perfect time of year. It's cold outside. If you don't want to go out to a party and you want to stay inside in a dark room and pop a bunch of popcorn, this is the show to watch. <laughs> yeah. Every half hour, you have a whole new conversation piece. It's a party show. You can you can do this forever. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> now, I, I wanted to throw out to you guys, if, heaven forbid, someone was going to try to do the Twilight Zone again. I mean, actually, it's only a matter of time. It's going to happen again because there are only so many original ideas in Hollywood and in the TV scape that anything that was popular once must be attempted again. And Twilight Zone was attempted, what, at least two more times? Two, yeah. Uh, so if it had to be done again, who should be tasked with it? Oh God! You mean for Serling? I mean for like who would who would be the ideal showrunner to sort of corral writers and talent and whatnot oh, and yeah. do some writing themselves? That's a great question. I feel like the only decent answer is Brian Fuller. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly a showrunner. He's got he's got exactly the right tone and the right sensibility. And- and he's done pretty much everything. Yeah, that's a good answer. Because I was trying to think, I was thinking of Ryan Murphy, but I don't know mm-hmm. that that would work. Not quite right. Yeah, there, it's tricky. And and that also brings up another notion with Twilight Zone, which is I don't know how successful this, even just like the same, if you brought Rod Serling forward and, we, and he was creating this show now, I don't know... Uh, how successful it would be or how how we would react to it because we would have this hyper uh, analysis every week of what the episode was and we would have people on message boards saying oh oh i wonder if the guy's going to be stuck alone again yeah and we went with with all this extra exploration of uh the the showrunner's themes and ideas and you know not just enjoying the 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 half hour for the half hour and then letting it go. And, you know, in a world of constant in, of instant criticism and constant rewatchability, I don't know if the, the twilight zone would have worked or caught on or become what it is. Yeah. You know, you know it's interesting. Like, like the 2003 twilight zone remake, very short lived. They actually did monsters are doing maple street again about terrorism, which is not a bad idea. Like that feels like the logical, if you're going to redo that story, take a different take on it, have it be, you know, have it be, it seems like such a classic thing to update. And yet it just doesn't work at all. Like none of those remakes have ever worked, but even taking the exact same concept and finding a very logical modern analog just doesn't play. And I think it's a lot of the stuff we've talked about. I think it's, I think it's the time period. I think it's the lack of Serling. I think, it's that the the audience just isn't that that kind of didactic storytelling just doesn't play the same way anymore. Uh, but it's it's a problem for anyone who inevitably tries to remake this. And you're right, we've got for the rest of forever, we're going to be seeing someone to try to do the next Twilight Zone. Yeah. yeah, and I I and we've discussed this parallel before, but there there has been an attempt recently with Black Mirror, but that's such a limited run, and has such a specific kind of uh, ideological bent that it's kind of a different thing. Well, and there have been six episodes, and we've complained already that we're tired yes. of of, this, of hearing the same thing from that, you know, the same themes. Uh, so it's it's a tricky thing. And when you have, again, this goes back to the, the time and the kinds of stories that until this point had been told on television, we weren't demanding as much from our television. So when every single week most of your characters are a trope rather than an actual person. 
that's something that we tie we we're not going to accept in the same way now that audiences did back when very few shows were really spending the same kind of energy devising complex nuanced very distinct worlds mm -hmm. I, f I feel like if if i was gonna launch a twilight zone equivalent now or a reboot now i would definitely keep it to a shorter run like 12 or 13 episodes because if you tried to do it with a network hall different stories every year every week especially if it was an hour long you would just drive yourself insane mm -hmm. and maybe that's why the the modern anthology series is like an american horror story or a true detective where you give yourself eight episodes or 13 episodes instead of one and then you just grind it all out at the end of the year and that's that's a pragmatic, logical evolution. Or, or I guess on film, you know, you do the anthology series and you have the interconnected stories, like, like Trick or Treat. There's, it's hard to do what Twilight Zone did today where it's just totally disconnected, except for the host. Yeah, well, and also such huge names. Everybody did at least one Twilight Zone. Uh, Fucking Buster Keaton! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's another thing with these, when, whenever they try to bring the Twilight Zone back, they never get the same kinds of names involved with it, uh, the same level, and I think that's also part of the fun, is to watch, you know, does Bridges Meredith have two, or does he even have three episodes, and they're all good? Oh, I think he has more than three, I think he has a half dozen. Yeah. That that would be another thing, actually, would be, I, I, I hate to go on about my hypothetical series, but... I think one thing that might make it easier if someone was going to do it now would be to maybe have a, a large repertory of actors and just sort of recycle them every couple of weeks in different combinations, maybe like 20 or 30 actors. Maybe that would make it workable. Just get yeah. someone involved as a producer who has lots of famous friends and watch exactly, catch yes. on, you know, and we'll see what happens with, uh, with that, with, given the McConaughey of it all with Tw True Detective, if we see more A-listers willing to go to TV in a way that, I mean, obviously that's been a thing that's been happening over time uh, as t a television's role in the larger filmmaking landscape has, has shifted, that that will continue to change. But I, I do think that would be an interesting element. Look at the cast of Fargo. Yeah. yeah. It's true. Well, we've already... We've already gone long, and we, I feel like we've said so little about this show that I do love so much. Um, final thoughts. We haven't talked about the cinematography. How have we not talked about the cinematography? I mean, how, how do you begin? This is the problem. This is, why, this is why this was a fool's errand for all of us to jump out of the Twilight Zone. We, we all love it so much, and we all can't even begin to scratch the surface of all of the great things about it. Yeah, I mean, not, this isn't really on the cinematography, but... Uh, there's nothing better than practical effects, and there just there just isn't. Even when they're bad, I always just love them. Yeah, and and like like we were talking about with the the monster or whatever is it a gremlin on the wing? Like it is gloriously bad. It is so entertainingly bad at this point. Right. It it's it's bad, but it but it is what I love about that is like yes, it's terrible, but you know what you can't dispute? It's there. It's there in front of you. Yeah. I would I would say if you're going to if you're either going to go back into Twilight Zone or if somehow you've never really sat down and watched it before, watch all of the episodes we've listed in this podcast. I think they're all valuable. And then close your eyes and just play Netflix roulette and land on an episode, hit play, see what happens. That's really the best way to watch the show because you're never going to get the full spectrum. 
if you don't just kind of give yourself up to a random experience. Yeah, go on YouTube. There's a bunch of them on there. And then just when it gets to the end, click the third box that comes up and go to the next one and go to, and start a spiral. And, you know, you'll, you'll this a, it's a very entertaining way to spend a marathon or, you know, if you want to have you know, be doing, you know, if you're, if you need to fold a bunch of laundry or dry some dishes or something, it's, it's really is such a wonderful show. And it's one of those ones that I wonder if the, if, if the next uh, generation down is going to find it in the same way, seeing as there is so much more, so many more options for programming. Like there's, there's Netflix. You could just you know, we could always watch anything at this point uh, in a way that at least when I was being introduced to the Twilight Zone, there were only a handful of, of networks that we got. So, you know, that that really limited choices. So I, I don't know, I, because I don't know any, I have a bunch of students, none of them know anything about the Twilight Zone. So That's terrible. That is I know. terrible. It's probably just me being alarmist and uh, in my day and assuming the worst from the next generation. And I'm sure it will probably not end up being the case, but... Uh, if you love the Twilight Zone, share it with share it with a friend who hasn't seen it yet. And if you haven't seen it yet, then check it out because there's a reason that it's been an inspiration to generations, decades of television and uh, and and creative people. And if it'll help kids, I'm sure someone's come up with some excellent drinking games like drink every time they were aliens all along, and it was the humans' <laughs> fault because I swear that's the end of like 17 episodes. <laughs> Never make it through the night. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Well, it's been so fun reliving just uh, the barest amount of the, the, the Twilight Zone here uh, with, with you, Scott. Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Where can our listeners find your writing online? Uh, every day I'm writing at theweek.com where I'm the entertainment editor. Uh, various other places across the Internet at various times. So follow me on Twitter at, at Scott Beslow. And uh, thank you again, Scott, for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. <laughs>